Welcome to American Dissident Voices. I'm Kevin Alfred Strom. I believe it was the great writer Daniel Concanon who first said that in America, no matter who you vote for, you always get Jonathan Greenblatt. Greenblatt looks like a particularly filthy gunsel from a 1940s gangster movie. He makes Peter Lorre look handsome. He's the head of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, which is perhaps the foremost anti-white hate operation in America today. It is the ADL who decides what you get to hear or see in the media and what you are allowed to say in public and on social media. It would be better named the Defamation League, as one of their main activities is defaming and deplatforming and smearing and financially and personally ruining anyone who exposes Jewish crimes, the genocidal nature of the Jewish agenda, or who has the temerity to say out loud that white people ought to continue to exist in this world. As proof that the ADL gets what it wants, and what it wants is to silence anyone who inhibits the Jewish agenda of a brown America, look at what happened to populist Tucker Carlson just this week. The most highly rated talk show host on the dinosaur media, so well liked that a recent poll puts his popularity higher than that of the entire Fox News network where he appeared. Carlson was fired this week by mega Zionist and possibly crypto or part Jew Rupert Murdoch, without reason being given. Jonathan Greenblatt has been pushing for Carlson to be fired for at least two years. Take a look at the softball CNN interview with Greenblatt from 12 April 2021, which I will embed in the text version of this broadcast. CNN is owned and run by Jews and is solidly in the anti-white camp. Greenblatt gets all worked up emotionally when he tells Brian Stelter, Tucker Carlson has got to go, calling for him to be deplatformed, and literally a few seconds later screeches, this is not cancel culture. Right. Greenblatt and the ADL goddamned invented cancel culture, for the God's sake. It's the very basis of their existence. Apparently, Tucker had mentioned the increasingly obvious fact that white people are being replaced by millions upon millions of non-whites in our own homelands. It's okay for the controlled media to mention this. They often do, so long as they frame it as a good and inevitable thing. But Tucker hadn't made the obligatory ritual incantations, 
And that might stir up the peasants and get them thinking maybe, just maybe, someone is trying to hurt them. Something that Greenblatt and his ilk cannot tolerate. Now, I'm not a hod carrier for Tucker Carlson. He articulates many of the problems we face as a people well. He informs us about a few parts of the anti-white agenda that the rest of the Jewish-controlled media try to downplay or keep hidden. But, like Lucy Van Pelt and her football with Charlie Brown, at the last moment he always pulls away and leaves us without knowing who is behind these things and why they do what they do. In some cases, he out-and-out misdirects our people into thinking that Democrats are the real problem, not race, not Jewish power. And Republicans, some of them anyway, are the real solution. He scrupulously and cleverly and rather disgustingly dances around the race issue. Sometimes he tells us that it's some shadowy, quote-unquote, woke conspiracy or air-headed groupthink trendiness that's behind it all. Truth be told, we as a people need groupthink. All peoples need groupthink. That is, thinking of themselves as a group and committing themselves to their group's survival in order to even exist at all. Tucker Carlson says that's a bad thing, promoting some vaguely libertarian strain of populism, or, or maybe it's a populist strain of libertarianism. It doesn't really matter. Either one is death for us. So I am not a big fan of Tucker Carlson. But Carlson went too far for Jonathan Greenblatt and the ADL, and he was hugely popular, so he had to go. And going against, insanely against, I might add, their own economic interests, the Murdochs fired him. Pleasing Jews is more important, apparently, than billions in revenue. And it is this same Greenblatt and same ADL that is allowed to give training courses to police officers nationwide, telling the officers just who it is who is dangerous and who should get especially intense law enforcement scrutiny. It is this same ADL that meets with social media executives, including Elon Musk, and tells them who it is who should have a voice and who should be stifled or silenced. It is this same ADL that tells our national and state and local legislators what laws should be passed and what speech should be banned. Speaking of pleasing Jews, witness the shocking behavior of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this week. For the second time in history, and DeSantis did it the first time too, an American governor has signed a bill into law while in a foreign country. 
It was a bill supported by the ADL and specifically crafted to make distribution of flyers criticizing Jews into a felony. And guess which country DeSantis was in when he signed it. If you guessed Israel, you're right. DeSantis, who, like Tucker Carlson, makes a lot of noise in apparent opposition to certain of the most outrageous parts of the Jewish anti-white agenda, and is positioning himself for a presidential campaign that would tap into white voters' concerns, knows who he has to please. His signing of this flagrantly immoral and illegal restriction on our speech while in Israel is deeply significant. A symbolic bowing to his masters in a place sacred to his masters, signaling he wants their approval for a move up, something that only they really decide. In the text version of this broadcast, I'll embed the tweet from neocon Jew Representative Andy Fine, who said, quote, made a secret trip to Jerusalem, three exclamation marks, to deliver Governor Ron DeSantis HB 269, the strongest anti-Semitism bill in the United States. To Florida's Nazi thugs, I have news. Attack Jews on their property, and you're going to prison. Never again means never again. Close quote. All of this surmounts a picture of DeSantis signing the sacred bill, with two smirking Jews looking on. Do I have to tell you that the bill has nothing to do with attacking Jews, but only with distributing literature that criticizes them or exposes their activities. I called this broadcast Greenblatt, Carlson, DeSantis, and Mary Fagan. Some of you may be wondering what all this has to do with Mary Fagan. And who is she, anyway? Well, you need to understand the murder of Mary Fagan in order to understand how we got from the land of the free to the point where a greasy, sleazy item like Greenblatt gets to decide what our laws should be and what you can say without getting fired or going to prison. It all began when 19th century white Americans woefully unaware of racial realities when it came to Jews, even though our laws explicitly stated that only whites could become citizens, mistakenly thought that Jews were just another kind of white person and let them stream into our country in huge numbers. Jews knowing they were a separate race, and with fanatical racial loyalty, immediately began to organize and acquire power for themselves, especially power over the press and eventually all mass media as they emerged. Initially, Jews in the southern U.S. adapted themselves to the reality of Jim Crow and positioned themselves publicly as white and supportive 
of white institutions. But all that changed at high noon on 26 April 1913 in Atlanta, Georgia. It happened on the second floor of the National Pencil Company building on Forsyth Street. It was a sweatshop where child laborers, mostly white girls, spent their youth making pencils for the company's Jewish owners for 60 hours a week and more, earning only pennies an hour. Thirteen-year-old Mary Fagan was one such girl. She came that day to the office to collect her pathetically meager $1.20 pay. There she met the sweatshop's Jewish boss and stockholder, Leo Frank, in his office on the second floor. Leo Frank was also the president of the Atlanta chapter of the B'nai B'rith, a Jewish organization that would spawn the ADL later that same year. It was a holiday, and no one else was on that entire floor. Frank paid her and then took her into the factory's metal room in the rear part of the second floor, as far as possible from the stairway and elevator and from prying eyes and ears. On the pretext of checking to see if the metal supplies she needed for her work had come in, he closed the doors behind them as they walked. Near the rear wall, standing in front of a metal lathe next to the toilet entrance, Leo Frank did to Mary Fagan what he, according to numerous witnesses, had often done with his teenage girl employees. He attempted to take sexual liberties with her. She resisted. Frank knocked her down forcibly, hitting her in the eye and striking her head against the unyielding metal lathe, opening a bloody gash that he may or may not have seen at first. While she was stunned, he pulled her garments up above her waist and raped her right on the red-stained floor in front of the toilet, lying in her own flowing blood. When he was done, seeing the blood, and doubtlessly realizing his predicament should Mary tell others of his actions, he found a piece of the twine used to pack supplies in his factory, wound it tightly around Mary's neck, and strangled her to death. He then tore off a piece of her lace underwear, placed it around her neck as if it were a lace necklet, and so it covered the marks of the strangling. He then summoned the factory's black sweeper, Jim Conley, to enlist his aid in the moving, and he hoped, the burning of Mary Fagan's body. Conley knew that Frank liked to quote-unquote chat in private, with the prettier of his young white employees, as he had kept watch for Frank on several occasions while such chatting took place. 
And, in fact, he was keeping watch for him near the factory's first-floor entrance at that very moment. Frank told Conley that he had struck the girl and accidentally killed her. The lace necklet might serve to conceal the strangling, at least conceal it from Conley. It would never fool the police investigators. Conley and Frank moved Mary's body to the basement. Frank and his legal team tried to frame the black night watchman, Newt Lee, for the murder. Among other things, they forged his time card and planted a fake bloody shirt at his residence. When that framing attempt failed, they tried to frame Jim Conley. And 110 years later, they're still trying to frame him. They planted a fake bloody club and pay envelope near the place where Conley kept watch for Frank that day. But that fake was exposed too. The true evidence kept building up, and the proof was overwhelming that Frank was the killer. He was convicted and sentenced to death. But Frank had something that ordinary defendants, black or white, never have. He was not an ordinary citizen. He was a Jew, a member of the supposedly chosen people. He was also an actual official of the Jewish power structure, the head of Atlanta's division of the B'nai B'rith. He had the already massive power, money, media ownership, and political influence of the organized Jewish community nationwide behind him. They refused to let the verdict stand. They funded a multi-million dollar legal and PR campaign to get him a new trial to make millions of gullible people believe he was innocent and a saint-like victim of anti-Semitism, and to get his sentence commuted. They were only partially successful. All his numerous and expensive appeals, which went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, failed. And the death sentence was carried out by an outraged citizenry after a corrupt governor commuted it. The Jews did fool a great number of Americans about Frank, however. And the Frank case galvanized Jews to see justice-minded whites as their enemies. The Leo Frank case was not only the first time the Jewish power structure flexed its muscles so openly to change public opinion and to get what it wanted from the political and legal systems. It was also when they decided that their alliance with whites was at an end. From that day forward, and intensifying greatly after World War II, the Jews have been ramping up a war on white people. Everything else flows from that day.
What that Jew pervert did to Mary Fagan on the metal room floor that day 110 years ago this week led directly to Jonathan Greenblatt telling you what you can and cannot say today. Led directly to the war on white people. Led directly, in fact, to the founding of the ADL just a few months after Mary Fagan breathed her last. And now, as Paul Harvey used to say, you know the rest of the story. (laughs) 